0: Welcome to Your Money with DeWitt Capital Management, a show about investing, the markets, life, and everything in between. David DeWitt Jr. and Sr. and Scott Frank will share what they've been reading and listening to and what the trends are in the market. All opinions expressed in the show are solely the opinions of Dave, Dave, and Scott or any guest on the show and do not reflect the opinions of DeWitt Capital Management. All content within the podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decision-making. Let's see what's what's going on in the market these days. Seems like it keeps going up and up and up. And uh, everyone seems to be bullish. Everyone and their best friend seems to be bullish.
1: Also, you know, there's been a couple of names that have driven uh, the market, uh, I guess, or at least most people to kind of start to focus on the market a lot more than they used to, Right.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I have people coming out of the out of the out of the woodwork who I never would have thought would be texting me or talking to me about stocks and stuff. But it seems like everyone now's gotta wants to get into the game. It seems like one thing that always seems to ring true is that the people, the the banks, the big banks, and the big research analysts always seem to be pretty optimistic about the future.
1: And I guess rightly so, right? There's there's good business in being optimistic. There's good business in you know keeping the uh, the market going.
0: Yeah, it's just funny how they always seem to justify it one way or the other. I mean, I'm looking at the consensus S&P 500 uh, numbers for 2021 at the end of the year, and the lowest end-of-year target for this year is 3,800, which is essentially where we are now.
1: That's the lowest, okay.
0: The lowest is 3,800, and the highest is 4,400. So no analyst really thinks that, Twenty twenty one is going to be a bad year, um, and uh, I mean so. So
1: you're looking at it's going to be flat to positive. I mean that's that's the the broad estimation. Uh, yeah. no, 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 yeah. Nobody's in the camp of of a negative.
0: No one's negative. No one's negative. Right. And you're right; it's not good for business, is it? Um, there, you know, I think I read a piece. We'll talk about a little bit later as well, but from Jeremy Grantham, who is who's got a lot of market experience over the years um, 50 years or so but uh, he basically says that it's terrible for business because, first of all, people are inherently want to want positivity and optimism, and um, and and to be to be to be one of the only people be bearish and to be wrong, it's too much career risk for certain people on Wall Street. Um, it's much easier. Even for these big guys, to just follow the herd because if they're wrong, everyone's wrong, and there's no you're not singled out for being wrong. Right. Um, and also, and they're trying to sell stocks, right, and sell products. So it's not right. easy to sell product and stocks when uh when you when you when you you don't have a a bank backing you with a supportive outlook. From this stat, it looks like um, out of the last uh, out of the last. 15 years analysts overestimated the S P five hundred price, twelve out of fifteen years. So <laughs> so then uh it's not great that's odds. the case, then then twenty twenty one, who knows, might be a little might be down. Sure. Um
1: I was just gonna suggest, I mean, there's a couple of things, right? I mean, one is you're gonna have probably a fair amount of support, right? Fiscally, uh, monetary wise. Um um, so that's difficult to fight against, and um, so the question is you know what kind of yeah. impact is that going to have, and how long will it keep this going and to what extent um, and I think the other the other thing to keep in mind too is I think the notion that everything kind of springs back really quickly. Um, uh, I don't know. I think maybe people are as you're talking about analysts overestimating there may be an overestimation of how much we open up and how fast or, you know, people race back because of this notion of pent up demand. So, um, I think those are, you know, that's certainly something yeah. to think about, right? Yeah. So there may be overestimation on how much of that's going to really impact Yeah. Uh, the economy.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think there's definitely, you know, there's definitely qualitative reasons to feel like things could do well and be bullish. I mean, there's no question. I mean, all that stuff. And the fact that we're in like an economy that's recovering, I mean, typically that's when stocks do do well. It's just that, you know, we're at levels now where how much more well can they do from here? Um, And so I thought, and so when we talk about valuation, that's a whole nother story. And I just read another bank coming out, being bullish saying, Goldman Sachs saying, they give you six ideas, uh, how to play, like where to go for this bullish factor. I read through all the six things and I mean, it was just a summary, but I didn't see it, even an ounce spoken about valuation. They didn't say valuation ever in the thing. They just said cyclicals over, you know, they said cyclicals over staples and they said um, dividends and, you know, a couple other things, but like, I was like, where's the valuation? Like, they're not even mentioning it because maybe there's, it doesn't really support their their thesis.
1: So so effectively sectors that uh, assume we are in a new cycle.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's basically their their overall take is that we're actually in a new we're in a bull market and that we've gone from a phase of hope and and like sort of animal spirits to now like where growth is really gonna start coming back as we start reopening. So I mean and of course, I mean on the surface, I mean, of course there's merit to that thought. I mean you, you gotta yeah. Yeah, I think so.
1: And I, and and it's one of these things too where you have to like it depends on the economy, right? So the economies that maybe more slightly tilted towards things that are going faster, like say technology, then you can see how you could probably run on a higher, uh, you know, higher PE, right. Or higher earnings, oh, yeah. right. Um, uh, perspective of evaluation. I meant to say um, versus others, other, you know, economies that, that don't. So you, there is a little bit of nuance there, but um You know, it remains to be seen. I think there's still a lot of uncertainties out there that um, people need to be mindful of.
0: Yeah, there's there's no doubt about it. Um, And I think just all the there's so many parallels to evaluation wise to other, you know, periods of time before big market, you know, drawdowns. Um, And we'll get into that in a minute, but I wanted to quickly touch on some of the the people that aren't so optimistic. And usually it's not the big banks, not the big strategists giving their big outlooks. It's usually the people who are on the buy side, are the people that are more independent researchers. But um Carson Block, I know you mentioned him the other day. Um, he has an interesting take I thought on on the market and what's going on. Um, he basically thinks that we are in a bubble but it's not your normal bubble where, so he was saying how in 2008, the bubble was in a specific asset class. It was in a specific, it was in it was in real estate. And then in 1999, it was in technology. It was specifically in technology. He's saying now it's like, we're in a, we're in a market that's actually fragile and it's like a boiling market all over. And then there's little bubbles that pop up and crash all the time sort of percolating and coming and going. And it does kind of feel that way because it seems like every single week there's a new bubble that comes and goes. And like the short attention span of the market, have the short attention span of the new participants in the market, and so that is an interesting take.
1: And, and do you think, like, you know, if, if enough smaller bubbles pop, there's contagion there, or is it is it do they? Well, speak, yeah,
0: speak, yeah. I think speaking of contagion, um, there are some interesting pieces about. And was, I guess, it's like a hedge fund kind of term, degrossing. Mm-hmm. where, where when, when some of these guys, these hedge funds who are short, some of these stocks that have been going up crazy, um, it's actually come at the detriment of quality stocks that they're long because they're forced, they're, they're forced to sell um, liquidity to stocks they don't want to sell to, to raise cash to cover the losses on the, uh, yes. the short side. So yeah. there has been talk about that contagion spreading around. And I think that was part of why last week, at the end of the week, market was going down because there were there were fears of some larger instability that was coming to a head um and i think a
1: financial accident that certainly would have tremored you know through
0: yeah yeah so there was a little bit of trend you know there it seems like now every couple weeks there's like little you know that the little sell off last week and there's just there's times where it feels a little bit like it just starts to feel a little funny you know and then it comes right back and everything's happy and everyone's gone crazy again but you know there's definitely a, at least in my opinion in my feeling in my gut that there's a there is a sense of instability brewing um i'm sure a lot of people feel that way
1: well and like it completely justifiable right i mean you know effectively why you're going to have so much stimulation or you know stimulus call it through uh, through the system is is because it's required right so that doesn't always suggest that things are healthy
0: exactly so that's another interesting so let's just finish up on the carson block um actually let's go so jeremy grantham in his piece that i recommend people read from earlier in january um waiting for the last stance he also talks he's like fully full-blown convinced this is a bubble like he's got no doubt in his mind he thinks this is the fourth big investing moment of his life and he's he considers it a privilege to be able to be an observer of this so i guess he finds it pretty fascinating but He admits that this bubble is different in the sense that most other bubbles in history have taken what is perceived to be he what he says perfect economic conditions and then extrapolate them indefinitely into the future where there's just there's no negative it's just everything's positive and perfect and he says the difference this time is that what's being extrapolated indefinitely is not that economic conditions are perfect but it's that the that we're going to have stimulus and government backing and low rates indefinitely forever, which I think is right. I mean, I can't, I mean, I think that's a pretty damn good way to explain it. Yes.
1: I think, I think that's the, um, that's the expectation that it's going to be very tough to take the punch bowl away. Right. Um, once you get everybody conditioned to this type of thing, um, to kind of keep this thing flowing.
0: I think one of of the quotes from this, that I thought was really good. He says, the great bull markets typically turn down when the market conditions are very favorable. So this is talking about the the version where economic conditions are perfect for stocks forever. They usually end when they're still favorable, but just subtly less favorable than they were yesterday. That is sort of the tipping point. When there's like the first little hint of skepticism takes you down and that is why he says, that they are missed from a timing perspective. It's that's why it's never easy to time because it's always subtle. It's a subtle change. Yes. And, um, so he's saying that he has no idea what's going to be the pin to prick this one. Um, he has no idea.
1: Uh, and that's typically the point. I think it's always, it's, it's it's usually something that very few are looking at and the crowd is not right. So then there's always some level of, of, of surprise right? when these things tend to happen. Otherwise, if they were in front of us, we could avoid them, but it's not the case.
0: Yeah, here's another interesting right after that part. He says, either way, the market is now checking off all the touchy-feely characteristics of a major bubble. The most impressive features are the intensity and enthusiasm of bulls, which I think we all know that just by turning on CNBC, Um, the breadth of coverage of stocks in the market, And above all the rising hostility towards bears he says in 1929 to be a bear was to risk physical attack and guarantee a character assassination (laughs) um and he says for us in 1999 was the only experience we have had of clients reacting as if we were deliberately and maliciously depriving them of gains so that was when they had a they had a bearish stance his 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 um his company his Firm, is, yeah, is GMO is a hedge fund, or is it? It's a family of funds. Yeah.
1: So yeah, it's a family of funds. Yep. Yeah. Strategies um, across the globe. Yep.
0: Yeah. So I mean, here we are. <laughs> it's just funny because, like, you know, we can sit here and tell people mm-hmm. that are like so hyped on the market, like, just be careful, and it's just like it seems like they're not listening half the time. They're just like, oh, you don't. Okay. Yeah. You've yeah, been missing c- out. Whatever. Complacent.
1: Yeah, yeah. Complacent.
0: Yeah. So. Um,
1: Again, something to be watched.
0: For sure. So, so another interesting, um, sort of just to pivot a little bit here is, um, going back to what Carson block was saying, and he had an interesting take on passive right now. Yep. Um, his take is that passive is a big, is a risk, um, because he says it effectively makes the, the investable floats of companies smaller. Um, because as long as you're getting passive inflows, passive has to buy. Um and the float is the stock available to buy. Um, but when you have he says, but when you have outflows from passive and passive runs almost entirely infested, but they don't have any cash sitting in in on in the sidelines on in the fund, it needs to sell in order to meet redemptions. So he says there could be this wall of selling. And this is what I think happened in March of last year. He says passive is making markets more squeezy, divorced from fundamentals, and makes the markets a lot more fragile. And I think that's interesting because we've talked about this a lot about how.
1: Well, that dovetails into your point about um, the hedge fund when, as they degross or reduce their exposure across the book. Um, the things that have been bid up the most or the most owned are the ATMs where, you know, you can get a bid on that stock. So when so everybody has to hit the sell button and all these indexes have to sell, those things are going to get unduly punished because they are liquid.
0: Yeah, I right. you saw
1: this in the hedge fund space in, in the last financial crisis of 08 where the ones that were the most prudent and the most liquid got punished the most because you could actually get your money out of them, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so, so that's yeah. And, that's a big issue.
0: And I think the difference between then and now is that they may have been prudent because they were being more selective, whereas now the prudency or the, the deservingness of these stocks to get taken down, it, that's a harder question because why are they bid up so much in the first place it's just where the money was flowing because momentum and other factors so i know i talked on the podcast last week about how i do think fundamentals still are important and i think over time fundamentals always win because if you're talking about the fundamentals of a company if the fundamentals of a company just go down 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 to the point where it's you know it ceases to exist i mean obviously there's not going to be a whole lot of money flowing into that stock so of course fundamentals have to matter in the long run but it does seem like in the short run there are there are divorces from it and they it's, can last a long time
1: yeah there, are like you know there's always overshooting on the upside and the downside this oscillation and there's no kind of like even keel um always hitting the average i think so there are these times when things get um a little less calibrated. And then, yeah. um, and then you will see that it will come towards a mean or consensus of, you know, having to, to really do your homework on a company uh, yes. rather than just uh, having to allocate to it because that's the rules of a passive index where you don't really have any discretion to when and how to put money into companies. It's just, that's the rules this is how it gets allocated. Every dollar that goes in, it gets allocated uh, pro rata with the index, right? So mm. different field.
0: Mm. Yeah, so I guess another theme that um, has crossed our minds in our discussions is um, if like 2010s was the decade of, act of passive management, like is it possible that the 2020s could be the change in a decade of more active management?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think the, there's a, Distinct possibility. If you look at um, again, much like with fundamentals, I think everything is cyclical in nature. So I think this whole notion of of this expansionary force of of passive indexing, weighting indexes relative to the size of the company, um, you may see a reversal of that. Where you know, if you look at valuations today, if they kind of somewhat mimic or have you know similar uh, similar size of the the nineteen nineties. The decade after that, two thousands early, you know, from aughts, the two thousand to two thousand and nine end. That was a fairly flattish environment for broad-based S and P investing, right? And that's also a a time frame where active management started to take a leadership role, right? So, um, so I think it's not certain, but it's something that should be observed or at least kind of looked at and studied. That. We could be in a similar situation where, you know, as you point to, fundamental analysis will then play a role. And if that is the case, then it comes back to stock picking. Yeah. Rather right. than yeah, just because investing in things that are big. Yeah,
0: yeah. Because I guess you know, in every bear market, there's still things that do well. Um, that's
1: right. There's
0: still companies that perform well. That you know, you know, if you have a if you have a company that's during the, one of the worst bear markets ever has their biggest success and biggest wins. And that's the stock that's going to go up. Um, I mean, most likely. So,
1: and remember at, at some stage you can keep bidding up a stock for so long. And what you're going to do is you're going to end up ex- expanding, you know, that kind of PE to it such a, to such a, an extent that the forward looking return is going to start to mitigate right a bit. So, so these things will exhaust themselves out over time. Um, and you know, it could be, um, it could be an interesting reversal that, I mean, we're obviously very mindful of and looking at all the time. Um, but it's a good, um, you know, it's, it's a good, uh, it's a good thing to start looking at.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if there was ever time to consider, um, a very carefully selected portfolio of individual stocks that have, you know really strong outlooks, then I think that would be a good time to really consider something like that or an advisor with a specialty or a unique capability of helping in that sort of stance. Because, um, I mean, especially, you know, I feel like the 2010s was also like the decade of easy money where everything, which helps passive, where everything is getting that lift higher um, because because companies are able to get money very cheaply and invest in things that maybe may or may not prove out, but there's lots of just money flying around. Um, So if things start to get a little tighter um, there's going to be winners and losers from a liquidity, from a ability to borrow capital standpoint. Um, So it's even more um, suggestive or supportive of the idea of maybe taking a little more active stance going forward.
1: Yep. Also, Having a quick look at, you know, where your sector exposure is, you know, how have things grown the last one, two, five, ten 10 years in your portfolio? Uh, also kind of like geography wise too. I mean, I think in the US, we tend to be very myopic on our thought process and views as to what the portfolio should look like, but it's a pretty big world out there. Um, a lot of geographies to look at that may present, you know, better opportunities with more diversification um, that... Um, also needs to be you know reviewed and considered
0: yeah for sure i know i know we um we're fond of looking overseas at emerging markets and i've even read some stuff about africa recently africa is pretty interesting yes uh so i guess so we've we've mentioned valuation a few times so i think we have some charts here that are suggestive of the valuations that are not favorable for the return of equities on average over the next few years. Um, do you want to touch on any of these?
1: Yeah, so um, so I think we can point to a couple. Um, um, if you look at, so, you know, we've talked about uh, GMO uh, quite a bit. Um, so there's a chart by, by them showing a seven-year asset class for return forecast, um, kind of looking forward. So how this works out is the higher valuation a uh, certain index or certain composite of stocks has, it typically tends to uh, project um, or um, tends to result in uh, lower compounding over the forward-looking period, right? And so with, what they've come up with with their forecasts uh, on the next seven years, starting this year, I guess, uh, is I'm just kind of quickly looking across nearly all large sectors in the U.S. So U.S. large cap, U.S. small cap, um, even, even some international, um, much, a much different outlook. So in the U.S., you're talking, uh, negative returns and, uh, that it does extend, um, to international. Uh, the one bright point that they've pointed out is uh, is emerging markets, but with a value orientation, right? Um, now, that, I guess this assumes that you're investing in a broad-based type of index and you own a lot of things. Um, I, I guess we're not suggesting that everything in these indexes are, is going to kind of show this type of trajectory. But just a very kind of crude way of look at it is is returns... Um, uh, look to, you know, look to be, um, a lot different than they were in the past.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think also you have like the, um, the Schiller Cape uh, ratio. And like we've said before is it's not necessarily good at predicting when returns are going to get, are going to be one way or the other, but it's good at getting the, the directional bias right over time. Right.
1: Yeah. So it comes back to your fundamental, um, you know uh points right uh, uh f- investing in fundamentals it's usually horrible when it comes to like telling you when to time or how to time something that's not necessarily what we would do anyway but um it's a good predictor of 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 you know future growth opportunity right so so i think you know the shiller cape what is it now is it is it 30 or a little over um you know typically if you get to those kinds of levels um, you know, you're kind of looking to compound on a forward looking basis. I think it's somewhere between, you know, zero to 5% annualized, right. And that's not, that's not a, um, a forward looking statement that we're, we were necessarily standing behind, but, um, it's just saying that kind of where we are, uh, with, within the cycle, um, that, you know, I think you, you can't necessarily expect to continue to compound, at these elevated rates forever. Right. And, right. and yeah. when does this happen? I don't know. It's impossible yeah. to know. But but it's something that you should be mindful of and and, and, and kind of embed in your expectation going forward is that um, it could it could feel a lot different than than it has felt.
0: Yeah for sure. I mean so far in my young but you know I've 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 been I've been really studying this stuff career everything that's felt good has turned to feel bad every time every time there's been a really good run and you felt like you're on top of the world it has ended and that's from my personal experience on individual stocks for yeah. the most part personally but um that's just the way it's been and um i think like there's been some great runs people have had and people are feeling on top of the world but
1: yeah if you look at the Schiller cape today i'm just looking at it it's at just round number for today. Um, it's at 35. At 35? Uh, yeah, historically, um, since 1880, uh, it's the second highest. The first highest is still the dot .com. Yeah. yeah. Which probably didn't quite touch 45 in 99. Uh, but it's certainly <laughs> over um, Black Tuesday. Uh, at back then it was 30. Now again, I I get it. Things are different. The dynamics are different, but again, it's a data point that people should pay attention to.
0: And here I'm looking at a chart that overlays the S&P 500 total return to the Shiller Cape and every time the Shiller Cape has its big spike, the S&P 500 in turn has a drawdown. So, so it doesn't necessarily happen right after it gets to that point, but It's obvious on a chart when you go out, you know, 40 years, it's obvious. You can just see it clear as day that that's what happens. And this goes along with another chart I'm looking at from JP Morgan, where it's looking at, um, the relationship between forward PE ratio and subsequent one year returns, and it has a little dot plot where it shows all different next year, one year returns. So the higher the, the, the forward PE, um, presumably the lower uh, their future return would be because um, you're already pricing in so much of the future. And in the one year it's all over the place. There's really a hardly any discernible uh, trend. And then if you look at the subsequent five-year annualized returns, boom, it's, a, it's a, it's, it's, it's all centered around that downward trend line. that shows you um, we'll post that in the show notes, but also, these are some of the, the, the things that quantity. So qualitatively we can say, and it makes sense. You could say, "Yeah, the stock market can be supported by all these low rates and all these things." But quantitatively, I think when you look at valuation, it gets a little more difficult.
1: Yeah, just a recalib- recalibrate expectation.
0: Yes, yes, and it's probably a good time to consider just getting second looks at what you're doing. Um, get a different opinion. Um, just see if there's anything yep. you can change, or you know, just retool, like you said.
1: Yep.
0: Yeah, I mean there's just a bunch. like I'm looking at S&P 500 valuations. So median EV to sales, US total market cap to GDP, EV to free cash flow, median price to sales, median price to book, median EV EB to EBITDA, aggregate EV EB to EV to sales, um um cyclically adjusted PE and there's like 10 more. Um I'm seeing for all of them 100th percentile in terms of valuation. 100th percentile. Uh, yes. There's a couple that are in the 90s, okay? So, so that's where we are relative to history. And again, I always have to qualify to say, yeah, rates are really low, and they might be low for a long time, but again, just ignore this stuff. Um, yes. So we had a, we had a listener um, last week who was asking about um, – he wants he, he wants to buy a house in the next three years, and he has some money that he plans to put down, he doesn't know what to do with it. It doesn't necessarily want to do nothing, but doesn't want to risk, it a lot, risk a lot of it. And So what would you say, Scott?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, it's case by case, obviously. That's, you know, first disclosure. Typically, I say when people don't have at least a three-year horizon, I don't know if I would uh, do too much in the way of investing in equities or, you know, the market per se, especially if this is something that you're going to have to rely upon uh, as you know, primary source of shelter. Um, also, if you could look to the fixed income side, but I'm not sure in the next three years, that's the most you know interesting place. Also, to kind of generate a little more, a little more yield. I, I guess if if you ha- if you were compelled or you had to invest, I would probably take a very balanced approach. Um, so that way when you needed the capital. I mean, everybody has a horizon, but you don't know what's going to happen in life, right? An opportunity comes along and maybe you can pull the trigger on a home because of some type of, of, you know, uh, price opportunity or, you know, something happens to a certain geography where things get more interesting or a better price point. Uh, It may be a year and a half or maybe a year and and you don't necessarily want to have stuff locked into, um, you know, into, some type of investment where it's probably not the best time to pull out of it. I mean, it really depends. So, um, so I would kind of probably stay more balanced if you had to, um, or kind of, you know, be a little underweight. So, you know, maybe a portion into, into something uh, of, of, of the corpus, but not, not the entire amount. Right. Um, And, you know, what's your re- realistic expectation, right? So like, you know, having a little bit more at the end is better than not having it enough, but uh at the end of the day, uh I'm not quite sure um it really moves the needle that much. So I would you know, things could change and um an opportunity could have present yourself where um maybe three years is an illusion, um and you could deploy it quicker than that. So um that's kind of, yeah. you know, my thought process is maybe a bit more conservative, but uh, it's a bit more certain.
0: Yes, I think that's pretty prudent. I think you should know how much, you know, really map out exactly how much you you want to put down on the house and map out how much you're going to be able to save, how much surplus you might be able to have. And maybe you could invest some of the surplus, Um or maybe just take a very tiny, like I'm saying, like five percent. If you wanted to, just have a couple feelers out there for something a little more speculative. If that's 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 me being a little bit more of the, uh, the I like to, you know, you know me. Um, yeah. But but yeah, the conservative approach. I would, did for sure, you want to avoid putting it all in like equities because in three years anything can happen. Thirty years, you probably know you're going to be okay. Yeah. If you want to buy a house in three years.
1: And also that's a, you know, that kind of question a bit loaded, like I want to invest it. Well, invest it in what? And then like, you know, I mean, there's so many things you can invest it in. Like not until you say, I'm going to invest it in X, Y, Z, where you can really give a proper opinion. But I think to both our points is, you know, if you know you're going to need this money and you have enough set aside for whatever you're going to purchase or whatever down payment you need for something, say, you know, a house I would try to keep it as um, uh, as whole as possible. That way, um, you don't find yourself on the other end with expectations of it being a bigger pie, and now you don't have enough to actually make the purchase, or or whatever you're trying to do. It becomes a bit more challenging. So, um, you know, m- my view is kind of um, a bird in hand is better than two in the bush.
0: Agreed. And so, don't so don't buy GameStop with that. Exactly. Okay. All right. That does it for uh, this week, and we'll talk next week. All right. All right. See you. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you want a question highlighted on the show, or have any comments or feedback, shoot us an email at, at gmail.com See you on the next one.